For the week of Thursday, June 28th, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Hello. On this week's show, we continue our coverage of the immigration crisis, talking first with Roxana Naruzi. She is the deputy director of One America, the largest immigration rights organization in Washington State, and she sees this current crisis as a wake-up call. You use this as a moment to ignite the level of civic engagement in our communities. Um, part of the reason this has happened is because we don't have people in Congress that are accountable to us. We also speak with Tamina Watson and Erin Albanese, hey, you know that name, of Lawyer Moms of America about their campaign to bring an open letter to every senator and member of Congress demanding an end to the detention of immigrant asylum seekers and their children. And then we talk with Indivisible Austin President Lisa Benjamin Goodgame about what activist communities are doing on behalf of immigrant rights in and around the border in Texas. That's all coming up, so stay with us. One America is a Seattle-based nonprofit that was founded by Representative Pramila Jayapal, and it has grown into the largest immigrant rights organization here in Washington. Roxana Naruzi is One America's deputy director, and we have invited her on to speak about how her organization is responding to the crisis at the border and to talk about some of the other actions that they have forthcoming in response. Roxana Naruzi, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Stefan. I'm really looking forward to speaking with you and talking a little bit about what's been going on. And there's been a lot going on, and it's really hard yeah. to unpack all of it, and we'll, we'll do our best here. Um, I certainly want to talk about what's happening with immigrant families, um, but I, I should just begin by mentioning that it has been a week of very difficult news from the Supreme Court. Uh, on Tuesday, the Supreme Court upheld the Trump administration's Muslim ban. And then today, on Wednesday, as we record, we've just learned that Justice Anthony Kennedy is retiring. Um, I'd like to get your thoughts on particularly the first development and how that may impact the work that you do. What are your thoughts on the travel ban ruling from the Supreme Court? Well, Stefan, first of all, as you know, we have been fighting this ban every step of the way. Um, I think you and your listeners probably remember that back when it was first announced in um, January of 2017, it was one of uh, President Trump's first, of one of his first executive orders, and our communities mobilized across the country to uh, fill up the airports, um, to shut down the airports, to really protest what a attack on our civil liberties um, this uh, executive order was and is, and. From that day, we've continued to work with our partners in the legal field, ACLU, um, and others, and mobilize around this um, outrageous, outrageous, bigoted attack on our communities. Um, One thing we've been very clear about from the beginning is this, um, is the ban is about religious intolerance, and it is about uh, racial discrimination. And that's one thing that we have to continue to bring to the forefront Obviously, the news yesterday was completely devastating. It's something that um, I think many of us know that this is a, a stain on our country, on our on our history. And I think as the days go on, 
will realize and the broader public will realize more and more what an embarrassment this is in the same ways in which um, the Korematsu case um, has come to li- came to light in the days and years following that decision. And, and that was the decision that led to the internment of Japanese families during World War II. Exactly. And the reason I make draw that connection is because, you know, in the years and the decades following um, it really became clear what a mistake that was, and the government um, has made public statements and, and in the years following that that was an embarrassment of our of our country that we allowed that to happen. And I just want to draw the parallel that we find ourselves in a very similar moment. And while the news is devastating, and while you know, I believe while while our country has a really ugly history of not only racial discrimination, but of um, stealing of Native American land and enslavement of African Americans and even the um, economic exploitation of immigrants. Um, We do have some core values around non-discrimination, around religious um, freedom, and that this is a place that people can come to and and be reunited with their families and seek safety. My personal story, I'm a I'm a second-generation Iranian, and my parents came here on a student visa and um, came in the 70s, and soon after um, the Iranian Revolution happened, they found their country, um, they could not go back um, because of the regime and religious discrimination. But, you know, our story was possible because of of the fact that they had a visa to come here. And today, that with the upholding of the Muslim ban, that wouldn't be possible. And so... It's devastating. It's disappointing. Um, I do believe that as a social justice and advocacy community, we've done everything in our power. We fought the case, you know, all the way up to the Supreme Court. And, you know, this was a this was a partisan decision. Well, yeah. And in fact, in their dissent, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Sonia Sotomayor said as much, said that they felt the decision was based on racial animus. So, of course, the the ruling is it's devastating. Um, I know there was a a protest at the Nakamura Courthouse in Seattle on Tuesday. And so protests will likely continue. But beyond the fight that you mentioned that you have waged against this, what might come next in terms of pushing back? What what are you aware of at this point? Um, In the short term, um, you know, a lot of the legal organizations are looking at other avenues. I know there's been some um, looking into the issue of waivers and how we can ensure that um, there still will be some opportunities for folks who have waivers to be able to apply from the countries that have been named as the ban. So there's some short-term legal remedies that folks are looking at. But one thing I would emphasize from the long term is that um, we have to use this as a moment to ignite the level of civic engagement in our communities. Um, part of the reason this has happened is because we don't have people in Congress that are are accountable to us. And at the core of our mission is power building, get out the vote, um, elect uh uh, elect um, candidates who are accountable to us, that are in line with our values. We've seen the power of doing that through examples like um, Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal. I was going to say, direct- the founder of your organization yeah. is setting a, a spectacular yeah. example in that regard. 
Yeah, and that's a great example. We're doing that all over the state um, with our legislative seats, with city councils, with county councils. So I think one thing I would emphasize is that um, it's very, while all of this is devastating, we have to respond. We have to, um, we can't just sit back and say, oh, well, this is happening. Um, we have to have a strong outcry, and that has to be happening consistently. Um, but at the same time, we can't lose sight of the bigger picture, and we can't feed into what the administration wants us to, which is constantly reacting. We have to have a long-term vision about how we're going to shift power, um, how we're going to build progressive leaders that are aligned with our values, that understand values of justice, equity, religious freedom, um, eliminating racial intolerance and racial inequity. And um, that's really our long-term goal is that we're going to be working in coalition and with our grassroots leaders across Washington State and then via them also through our coalitions across the country to make sure that we have a strong electoral plan, not only for this um, upcoming midterm elections, but long term for the next decade. Well, thank you for framing it in those terms, because, uh, you know, seen in that light in in the very short term, the news is very, very dark this week. But uh, there is a long fight ahead. And it's reassuring uh, to hear that you and others have coalitions in place. And uh, I think that can be inspirational to people listening to say, OK, this this fight isn't over. Uh, it's going to be a long fight, but we definitely uh, are in this together. Um, I, I do want to shift over and talk about the ongoing fight uh, for immigrant families because that is very much happening in real time right now. And there is a lot of confusion uh, around what has been happening. There have been a number of, of court rulings, one in particular, and you may not have had much of a chance to review it yet, but a federal judge in California issued a nationwide injunction on Tuesday that prevents the Trump administration from separating children from their parents at the border and uh, orders that all families already separated be united within 30 days. Uh, just very briefly, what are your thoughts here? Um, well, Stefan, I think this is great news. Um, one of the things that was so hard about the news of the Muslim ban is we've always believed in our democracy and believed in the court's ability to uphold um, and be nonpartisan and uphold um, a level of uh, uh, objection in the rule of law. And I think the devastating thing is that we saw some of that crumble yesterday and also in some of the decisions coming out of the Supreme Court that have followed. Um, but this decision, I think, has reinstilled a little bit of hope that the courts, uh, there is a role for the courts and they're doing their job. Um, we've been following this case from the ACLU since the upswing in um, separating families from and separating children from their families at the border. I think it's it's great news. Um, I think some of the stipulations around time and what is expected in terms of family reunification, um, there's been a lot of confusion after Trump signed the executive order around what it really means. And one thing we've been very clear about is that um, that executive order said nothing and stipulated nothing around how families who have currently been separated from their children would be reunited. Right. So this is a glimmer of hope in the right direction. And, um, you know, we're, we're, we're hopeful to see that for uh, children under five, that the ruling states that they must be reunited with their parents within 14 days. 
um, and that all children must be allowed to be in contact with their parents within 10 days. And then for um, children over the age of five, it's 30 days. I think there's a whole set of logistical things that the um, Office of Refugee Resettlement will need to figure out. And as we've seen some of the hearings taking place in the Senate this week, it's very clear that they don't have a plan and that the department has not been properly tracking how to reunite um, families back with their children. So I think a lot of this, the court ruling is, is positive and it's something we'll definitely lift up as a victory and now it needs to be implemented. Something else that is on the schedule for this weekend regarding that is the Keep Families Together rallies. These are happening all over the country. The main one is in Washington, D.C. The action that is happening here uh, in western Washington is going to be at the Federal Detention Center in SeaTac uh, on Saturday, June 30th at 11 a.m. This is going to be launching a week of action. Uh, first, uh, for people who aren't familiar, tell us who is being held in this facility at SeaTac. Oh, that's a great question. So um, about three weeks ago, there were um, about a little over 200 individuals who were transferred from the southern border to um, the the SeaTac prison. One of the things to note is that the reason that they were transferred to a prison is because all of our immigration detention facilities are full. They're at maximum. So that is an indication to all of us about um, the levels of um, the numbers by which immigrants are being incarcerated in this country, basically for following a lot of the time what their legal right is to claim asylum. So uh, a a large majority of these individuals who were transferred to the CTAC prison were asylum seekers. They did follow the process of coming into the country and saying, you know, my, my life is at risk and I'm claiming asylum. Um, they were not given credible fear hearings and um, were held at um, detention facilities on the border, which, as we've heard through accounts of Congresswoman Jayapal, as well as many others, um, the conditions were horrendous. There were moments in which many of these uh, folks were uh, described being in um, places like the ice box with very, very frigid temperatures being held in those sort of facilities or held in um, places that they coined the term dog pound um, that, because they were kept in cages. So this is happening under our nose in this country. Um, and they actually shared, many of them shared that um, the SeaTac prison, it's a federal pre- prison facility, was the first time they actually felt like they were treated as human beings. So um, many of them have been transferred there, many of them parents. I believe there were 32 men, and the rest are all women, large majority of them fleeing violence, um, seeking asylum from a a lot of different countries, not only Central America. There are folks there from um, uh, parts of um, East and West Africa, as well as parts of um, South Asia, and many of them parents who describe just heart-wrenching experiences of being separated from their children, not knowing where their children were, not having contact with them. Some of those individuals have now been transferred down to the Northwest Detention Center in Tacoma. Um, so they're not all they're not all still there, but there are still individuals, um, asylum-seeking individuals who are being held at 
um, the SeaTac prison, which is one of the reasons why we decided to um, host the rally there and move it from the Seattle location. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I should point out for listeners that there was going to be a march in Seattle. But as you say, you have moved it down to the SeaTac detention facility on Saturday. So, you know, I'll ask you, what's your aim with this rally? What are you hoping for? You know, the big aim for the rallies on Saturday is just to increase the public outcry. One thing we heard very clearly from so many folks, the family separation issue is something that everyone can relate to, Can everyone can feel, whether you're a parent, whether you're not a parent. We all have families. We all have people that we care about. And um, to imagine them being ripped away from us and the emotion of not knowing where your children, where your child is, as a child not knowing where your mother is. So we had um, across the country calls after calls around what can we do, what can we do in this moment? And it was then that we, um, many of us came together and said, you know, let's, let's plan a series of actions that culminate in a national day of action to really increase the public outcry and put our demands front and center. So that really is the intention is to channel all of the energy and to demonstrate um, similar to what to what was demonstrated for the women's march that we're not just going to um, that the majority of the people in this country do not agree and not only do they not agree they're outraged by this, um, by the policies of the current administration. Yeah, absolutely. And so that is the aim of the event on Saturday at the SeaTac Federal Detention Center. And that's to kick off a week of action. So uh, tell us what's going to be following in the coming days. Yeah, so the Week of Action is something that the coalition in Washington State, many organizations have been part of this, including the Washington Immigrant Solidarity Network um, and others who have been leading on issues of um, of uh, family unity and fighting the unjust uh, immigration system, not only since Trump has been in office, but really for years and decades. So um, many of us have come together in coalition and um decided that we're not only going to do a rally, but we're going to use the rally as a kickoff point for a week of concerted actions that put specific pressure on tar- on our targets um, to, uh, to make movement on some of our demands. One of our core demands is officially ending the zero tolerance policy to immediately re- reunite the families, um, the children who've been separated from their parents. Um, and there's a list of a couple other things that we're putting front and center, but some of the activities that we'll focus on is um, we'll be targeting some of our Republican congressional members in the state and um, visiting their offices with our demands, um, continuing to escalate the pressure. Um, we'll also be doing some targeted um, targeted actions at um, ICE and um, uh, ICE offices. And we're, we've just launched a big campaign to collect children's shoes, um, and we have a goal of collecting about um, 2,300 children's shoes to represent the over 2,000 children who have been separated from their families with notes and personal stories from our community members 
um, and deliver those shoes to throughout our different actions with our different targets. Yeah. In fact, I just saw a posting online that a pair of shoes had already been delivered to the office of 3rd District Congresswoman Jamie Herrera-Butler. Uh, these are a pair of shoes worn by a young girl who's been separated from her parents uh, with the words, walk a mile in my shoes. This is an extraordinarily powerful message. Yes, it is. And, you know, it's moments like this that we have to center not only the policies, but the stories of our communities and the emotion. As I said earlier, I think everyone, there's not one person that can't relate to the feeling of a child being kept from some from their caretaker, whether it's a parent or their grandparent or anyone else. So we're really thinking about ways to increase the emotional angle of this moment yeah. and you know, not let our elected officials hide behind things like policies and national security, but actually face have to face that these are children, these are families, and if they're not saying anything, they're basically their silence is endorsing what's happening. Well, I know that people listening are keenly interested in what you're saying, and I know that a lot of people, because this is a very motivated audience, are looking to take part. Where can people learn more about this week of action and some of the events that are taking place? That's a great question. Um, We have a Facebook page that is about the rally, and it is listing our week of action. Also, if you go to the Families Belong Together, Google Families Belong Together at moveon.org, um, you can put your zip code in and find a local rally. There are about 10 planned throughout Washington State, but also across the country. And if you follow One America's Facebook page or social media, we'll be, um, we'll be updating our social media with the hashtag walk a mile in our shoes. And if you click on that hashtag, you can follow all the different actions. You can drop off a pair of um, shoes to the One America office or get in touch via our social media to figure out how you can donate. We have a bold goal of collecting 2,000 shoes to deliver during our week of action. And um, we also have postcards where um, uh, community members who have had any story of struggle or migration um, can write their personal stories and connect it to um, to the pain that our communities are experiencing in this moment. Well, we'll make sure to have all that information available for people at IndivisiblePodcast.org and also on the SoundCloud page. Um, it, I, I really want to thank you for taking the time to uh, to talk with us. And before I let you go, I just want to mention um, something very interesting. You have a master's in social work from the University of Washington, and you were awarded the Bonderman Fellowship. And so this meant that you traveled to 20 countries exploring and reporting on post-conflict uh, regions, migration trends, and identity. That had to have just been incredibly eye-opening. Uh, talk a little bit about that experience and how it informs the work that you do now. Well, there's not really not a day that goes by that I don't think about my experiences in the countries that I had this incredible opportunity to visit. Um, the whole theme of my fellowship and why I was awarded the opportunity was um, because I'd done a lot of work with immigrant populations, direct service work. I was a housing case manager here, and um, I was seeing, I was on the receiving end of what immigrants, refugees, asylum seekers were experiencing when they came to Seattle and were trying to navigate systems. 
And um, what I really, what my hope with the fellowship was to go back to countries where we had large immigrant populations in Seattle and better understand the social and political context in which um, they were living and in which forced their migration, in a lot of cases, forced their migration to the U.S. And this is a story that is not far from my own. As I mentioned earlier, um, my parents um, and the rest of my relatives and family, we had no choice but to leave our home country. It wasn't safe anymore because of the regime change. And um, of I, I had the opportunity to travel to so many places in the world, like Rwanda, Syria, Ethiopia, um, uh, India, Cambodia, that have experienced similar types of um, displacement for different reasons. And um, I had this deep, much deeper understanding of not only the experience of immigrants when they come to the U.S., but also um, the the context and all of the ways in which people are are escaping for freedom and escaping for um, escaping persecution, violence, and their only hope is landing in a place that they're safe and that their families are safe and that their children are safe. So there's not a day that goes by that I don't think of the people I met, of the stories that um, were shared with me, and that these are the same stories that uh, are. Um, that are uh, that are coming to the border, the southern border, and that we're not allow- that the current administration is shutting down and not allowing to be heard. Um, the other big connection that I would make is that I realized how much um, we're all connected, and that our our policies, our global policies, are not in a vacuum. That there's a reason why all of the instability in different countries that I went to, and I had a specific eye to understand the role that U.S. played in U.S. Um, in U.S. foreign policies as I was traveling to different parts of the world. And I think that's a really important thing for your listeners, for the public to keep in mind in Absolutely. this moment, is that when we're thinking about why, um, why so many people are escaping and coming um, to the U.S. to seek asylum, there are ways that the U.S. has been involved in foreign policy in Central America and other parts of the world that have created this crisis and have created instability. And um, I think it's really, really important to not lose sight of that and to bring that global awareness piece into the current crisis and moment at the same time not losing sight of of what's at stake right right in this moment. I completely agree. It's it's all intertwined, and I really thank you for pointing that out. And, and I want to also thank you for the great work that you're doing with One America. And thanks for taking the time to, uh, to join us on the show today. Well, thank you, Stefan. And I want to thank you. I want to thank Indivisible and all your listeners and folks who have activated in the last year. We really wouldn't we really wouldn't have um, the power to be as vocal, to be as strong as we are, and to respond to every moment without the involvement of Indivisible and the involvement of so many allies who have stepped up and said, this is unacceptable, and we will continue to fight, and we will continue to be vocal, and we'll continue to work in partnership and allyship. Um, So we have to keep the long-term vision in mind. Um, We know that this is a, a... a sad and and horrible blip in our history, but we will get through it. And the importance is how we stand up and work together and not lose sight of our 
collective values. So I want to thank your listeners for that and thank you for um, the platform for folks uh, in the state and across the, the country to hear more about the work that we're doing. Well, that's a perfect place to leave it. And let's let's work hard to make this a, a blip in history and not something that lasts any longer. But again, Roxanne Anuruzi, thank you so much. Thank you. So last week, a group called Lawyer Moms of America announced that its members will be visiting every senator and member of Congress across the United States to deliver an open letter that demands a just and humane resolution to the ongoing crisis with immigrants and asylum seekers at the U.S. border. One of the leads on this effort is our very own Erin Albanese. Erin is a nonprofit and business lawyer, and she is joined by fellow attorney Tamina Watson. Tamina, you're an immigration attorney and founder of Watson Immigration Law. You are also the host of a podcast, Tamina Talks Immigration. I'll have a link for that for folks to check out. Uh, Aaron and Tamina, thank you both so much for being here. Thank you so much for having us. So I want to start with the open letter, what it outlines, what it calls for. Uh, Trump recently called for suspending due process for anyone who is caught crossing the border, which was alarming to say the least. Um, the letter from Lawyer Mom says, quote, it is well established that both immigrants and U.S. citizens have constitutional due process rights. I would love for you to explain that a little bit to me. And if you could talk about how the Constitution protects due process, even for non-citizens. Well, when an immigrant is coming to the U.S., uh, if they've crossed the border or they're actually uh, applying for asylum at the border, they have an expectation that they will get uh, a right to a hearing in front of a judge and have a right to present their case uh, so that their case can be decided uh, and they can get refuge in the U.S. as they are seeking. Remember, a lot of these people are fleeing persecution. They're coming from countries which are, um, you know, uh, they have violence and they're escaping gang violence and all sorts of other uh, violence. And they're coming to the U.S. for protection. So when they get here, they have an absolute expectation for a right to due process so that they can be in front of a judge and have a, a hearing to have their case heard. And specifically, it is codified in the Constitution, the right to due process for everyone in this country, correct? Absolutely. The Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments uh, um, afford due process, um, it is, it not only in criminal proceedings, but also civil. And immigration generally, you know, is not criminal. Uh, although these people that are crossing the border, whether they're applying for asylum at the border or crossing, they are now being charged with a criminal misdemeanor because it, the improper entry is a misdemeanor and they're being charged. And then when they are convicted, they are serving their time, but they are continued to be kept in these immigration facilities and therefore they do have a right to due process. So Trump's executive order purports to end family separation, uh, but instead calls for collective family detention. There's a lot going on with this right now, and it's sown a lot of confusion. We don't even know if the CPB is going to be enforcing that. But in any event, that is expected to be challenged because of the so-called Flores settlement. Um, tell us briefly what the Flores settlement is. 
It's a very good question. And, you know, it, I think it's very important that people understand it. The Flores Agreement uh, came out of a law, class action lawsuit that was filed in 1985. And it was um, uh, challenging the, the government's treatment and detention and release of immigrant children. So in 1997, there was a Flores Settlement Agreement. And what that agreement um is that the government is required to release children from immigration detention without unnecessary delay um, and, and they must reunite them with parents or adult relatives or licensed programs willing to accept custody. The second thing about the agreement is that if a suitable placement is not immediately available, the government is obligated to place children in the least restrictive setting appropriate in any space. Page is not one of the things that would be, in my opinion, be least restrictive. And the third one is that the government must implement standards relating to the care and treatment of children in immigration detention. Again, CAGE is not one of the things, in my opinion, that goes with the Flores settlement. So in essence, the government has an obligation to treat children and make sure that they do have proper care and attention and are released from detention as soon as possible. And I think you're getting into an area that also is is going to be particularly confusing because of the Flores settlement. Uh, it may be such that if children are detained with their parents, uh, there may be conditions that violate the Flores settlement and thereby would de facto wind up separating children from their parents. Again, a lot is unknown. I want to get into the demands of the letter, uh, Aaron. And uh, this is something that, as I said, uh, people are going to be delivering to every member of Congress and every senator in the U.S. Aaron, just uh, kind of briefly outline, what does the letter demand? Hi, Stefan. We're asking for a reunification of the families um, immediately and, um, and exhaustively. We're asking for no indefinite family detention. That's one thing that the EO uh, that Trump signed last week left open was it appeared to um, call for indefinite detention um, as long as families are kept together. And we just don't think that indefinite detention is a good solution to family separation. We'd really also like to see the end of the Jeff Sessions zero tolerance policy of detaining asylum seekers for the misdemeanor of, quote, improper entry. And you're also asking that uh, children who cannot be reunited with their parents, and I should uh, just kind of reference our previous segment, uh, and we talked about a recent court ruling that has demanded that children be reunited with their parents within 30 days. But if they can't be, uh, you're asking that they be put with uh, people in uh, safe environments, uh, not for adoption specifically, correct? Yes, there's been a lot of internet chatter, a lot of discussions on our page, especially about adoption and what happens if children are then placed and there's no effort to reunite them with their families um, and, you know, children potentially being adopted out without the parents' consent. Tell us about Lawyer Moms of America, Erin. How did that group get started? Um, so I'm in another um, online forum for moms that are lawyers, and so is Tamina, and actually that's how we met. 
but it's not it's not a political group. It's just um, advice and um, kind of a nice mix of lawyer stuff and mom stuff and just general life stuff. Uh, one of our members, Kate Lincoln Goldfinch, is an immigration lawyer in Texas, and she posted a story on June seventh about interviewing a new client who was crying because Border Patrol had ripped her child out of her arms and she had not seen her child in weeks. And, um, her kid, I think was five or six years old. And in the combination of that and the stories that we'd been reading on the news, um, a few of us, uh, in the comments section said, you know, what can we do besides share this on our page? And, um, and lament it. And so, um, as you know, I have a little bit of a background in activism and a couple Just other a people bit. in the group yeah. did too. <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, so we formed our own Facebook group and um, we went from four people on June 7th to now, I think, last time I checked, we had 15,600. Wow. That is just a, a phenomenal rate of growth. And, you know, I, I think that really speaks to the level of concern and outrage that uh, a lot of people are feeling right now. How did you wind up taking on a lead role in this? And actually, I'll ask you this. Were you instrumental in the drafting of the open letter? A lot of us took uh, took part in that. And we actually have a lot of other um, really amazing attorneys and non-attorneys in our group that help put everything together. Um, and so we drafted one letter before the EO came out. And then we had to quickly regroup after the EO and write a new one. So there's there was a really phenomenal team of people that worked on putting that together. Yeah, well, as I did note, and in fact, as you just mentioned, uh, there was an early draft of this letter that I saw, and you had to rewrite it rather quickly after the EO was released. And I imagine that was probably a pretty difficult task, given that we still don't really know what the executive order means, right? There are a lot of moving pieces. So we did try. We, we envisioned a scenario where we ended up with six letters. So we tried to draft letter number two, that it was um, inclusive and enough that even if, you know, one of our demands is met, that the rest still apply. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is something that I think I'm going to want to check back in with you guys on as this uh, the situation uh, continues to unfold. Uh, you know, something I wanted to point out, the group says that it is intentionally nonpartisan. And I, I guess I'm wondering, do politics come up in the group much? They haven't. Um, and I know that there are personally, I know a few people that uh, don't identify as um, Democrats or left side people that are in the group that are behind this issue. And I think that it is a universal enough issue. I keep thinking about Gandhi and the salt march that spurred the Indian independence movement. And um, the salt march was an, it, it was an issue around a salt tax being imposed by the British government um, for a product that they could essentially go down to the sea and, and create for free salt. And so, um, so Gandhi in this, um, small, seemingly small, but universal issue, um, managed to create a resistance around that, that, that then was able to be built on. And so I'm, 
I'm thinking that this is one of those universal issues, and obviously it hits people way more deeply and viscerally than salt um, when we see uh, children in cages. And so we've been really focused on the issue and focused on the action. We now have 244 letter deliveries scheduled across the country. Wow, that's that's fantastic. Yeah, and um, we are still working. We have a few states that we're still working on. But if if we can't get to a we have constituent signatures for every district and for every member of Congress. And so for those, if we um, don't have someone to deliver it in the district, then Heard on the Hill and some of our D.C. members will be delivering to the D.C. offices of those members of Congress. Your congressman, Aaron, Dave Reichert, has two district offices uh, that called the police on people who showed up last week to their offices with children, I should add. And I, I will say I know that because I was there. I'm curious what your game plan is if you show up there on Friday and there are police barring your entrance. I think we'll probably put that on Facebook Live. I think a lot of people would be really interested to see that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the, the people in our group especially. I have spoken to um, staff at Dave Reichert's office. Um, his office is unusual, as you, as you probably know, that they make you fill out this form and fax it in in, in the year 2018. <laughs> and um, so I had to figure out a way to fax it from my phone. Um, but did, I did you use ResistBot? That would have been great. <laughs> <laughs> be good. Well, they won't take it that way. They have to have the actual form filled yeah. out. And it's this, you know, who's coming and what do you want and this right. and that. And I attached the letter. And, um, and I did get a call back from his office And because he'd originally suggested when I said I didn't have a fax machine that I could mail it in. (laughs) So um, this was like Monday. (laughs) And so um, so they did call me back and they said, well, you know, he's going to be out of the office all day on Friday at meetings. And so he won't be here. But now we have the letter because you attach it to your fax. And I said, well, we still want to deliver it in person because we have, you know, several thousand people that have signed it and people in this district want to deliver those signatures to him in person or to your office. So we'll just do a drop off. And uh, he said he'd have to get back to me on that. So, um, so we'll see how it goes. You know, I'm hoping that they leave the door unlocked and we can walk in and drop it off and take a picture with them. And uh, if not, we will um, we'll be on Facebook Live. You will be on Facebook Live. And uh, either way, there will be uh, video or photos. And we'll make sure to post those on IndivisiblePodcast.org and also on the SoundCloud page. Uh, Tamina, where will you be delivering your letter? I will likely be going to Senator Murray's office in Washington, in downtown Seattle. Okay. Uh, And have you reached out to them, the staff? Are they aware that you're coming? Not yet, but they're generally very receptive. They've been at the forefront of fighting this particular issue. Sure. Uh, they and Senator Cantwell as well. We are very, very lucky to have um, progressive leaders uh, in our in our area, well, being the the voice of this particular situation. Yeah. Uh, absolutely, completely agreed there. Well, before I let you both go, uh, Aaron, I, I wanted to ask you, because you are always tapped into these things. Uh, so in addition to dropping off the letters on Friday the 29th and the marches that are happening across the country and the state on Saturday the 30th, and uh, again, I will remind people that the event in Seattle has been moved to the SeaTac Federal Detention Facility. I know there is going to be a week of action following. Can you give us an idea of some of what is planned? Sure. Um, There will be daily vigils at the Seattle ICE office this week. 
Uh, Monday through Friday, basically anytime between 8 a.m. and 6 p.m., although most people are there between 8 and 10 a.m. And the address is 1002nd Avenue. And additionally, there's ongoing support and presence uh, down at the Northwest Detention Center, and that's through uh, NWDC Resistance. They're going down there most Saturdays, I believe, with um, snacks and support for the families who have family members that are being detained inside. I believe there may also be something on Saturday, and I don't have the actual details for it, on the travel ban uh, protest. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, that's great. And I'll make sure that I put up links to all of that information on the website and also on the SoundCloud page. But uh, Aaron, I can't believe that, you know, you've been involved with the show for as long as you have, and this is your first time on it. So thank you for doing that. And and Tamina, Mm -hmm. uh, thank you so much for joining us and offering your expertise. And uh, again, I I recommend that people check out your podcast, uh, Tamina Talks Immigration, and I will have information for that for folks to check out. But uh, thank you guys both so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Lisa Benjamin Goodgame is the president of Indivisible Austin, and she joins us now to talk about her group's response to what has been happening at the border in Texas. Lisa, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Sure. Thanks for having me. And I know that it has been kind of a crazy time for you. Uh, there's been a lot going on. You're kind of in the eye of the storm down there. And But I know that people really would like to hear from Indivisible members um, on your end. So I want to talk briefly about some of the actions that your group has been taking part in and involved with. Uh, first, I want to talk about a, a place called the Hutto Detention Center. This is just outside of Austin. This is the only all-women's facility in the country for uh, immigrant asylum seekers. There are currently over 500 women there. Uh, and I'm curious to hear about uh, one action in particular that you have the that you have taken part in at the Williamson County Courthouse. Can you tell us about that? Sure. So uh, the, the Hutto Detention Center is located just about 30, 35 minutes north of Austin uh, in Georgetown, Texas, which is a northern suburb of Austin. And Uh, The women who are at the Hutto Center are uh, women who are seeking asylum. And uh, for for a long time, uh, a local organization called Grassroots Leadership has been leading the fight to uh, not just protect the women who are currently uh, in detention there uh, and to working to uh, help get them out of detention, but over the last several months has really ramped up a campaign to close the Hutto Detention Center. Uh, it has been, it's a place that has been known um, to create a very unsafe environment for women. Many women have uh, uh, pursued, um, you know, claims of uh, sexual assault that have happened to them uh, while in detention there. And a few months ago, a woman named Laura Monterosa, who had been incarcerated at the Hutto Detention Center, actually won her freedom uh, after a sustained campaign by grassroots, led by grassroots leadership um, to, to free her from the detention center. And she had alleged that some terrible things were happening on the inside, right? She, she did. She, um, she had uh, experienced sexual assault there. Um, allegations that she was forced into solitary confinement, for example, unless she recanted her allegations. 
and um, it was really a, a great win to uh, to get Laura out of detention there. But she is one woman of hundreds uh, who are experiencing these these terrible conditions. Yeah. Well, so then tell us about the larger uh, action that you and Indivisible Austin took part in. So today, grassroots leadership organized uh, a march uh, at the Williamson County Commissioner's Court, uh, which is uh, Williamson County is the county that the Hutto Detention Center is in. And uh, after, you know, a a sustained campaign here, uh, finally, the Williamson County Commissioners were going to vote on the question of whether or not to uh, cancel the contract uh, with ICE for the detention center. And today, the county commissioners did vote to cancel that contract. It's a tremendous win in this campaign. And um, it doesn't mean, obviously, that the detention center will be closed tomorrow. Right. Mm. There's there's still a process to go through. Um, But uh, this is, I think, an incredible example of the way that um, organized campaigns that build a movement and build the um, the will, right, of everyday people to engage in the fight for those who are being targeted and oppressed by ICE and, and by this current administration. Uh, this is an example of, of how that kind of movement can can really be effective. Right. And it, and as you say, it's not something that's going to ho- happen overnight, but uh, it, it certainly is a, a rare ray of hope in all of this. Uh, another organization that you have coordinated with is the Austin Sanctuary Network. Uh, this is a, a sanctuary movement to protect people from deportation. Uh, first, tell us what is uh, sanctuary protection? So sanctuary, the Austin Sanctuary Network is um, a network of, of churches and other nonprofit organizations that are working together to protect people from deportation. And one of the ways that that happens is by actually protecting people by housing them in churches. There are locations that are considered, quote unquote, sensitive locations where ICE historically would not uh, pursue trying to arrest and, you know, start the process, right, of putting someone into deportation proceedings. And those places included hospitals and churches. So there are uh, a couple of people in Austin who have lived in sanctuary in congregations here in, in the city under the protection of the churches and with the support of community members who are, you know, essentially providing for for all of their needs uh, while their immigration case is being fought uh, in order to prevent them from from being deported from from the U.S. right now. Well, this sounds like tremendous uh, work and a tremendous service. How many people are we talking about? There are currently two, two people in the Austin area who are in sanctuary. And uh, as I said, they are being protected uh, by the community and and all their needs are being provided for uh, by the community. So there are members of Indivisible Austin who are engaged with Austin Sanctuary Network and helping not only to um, 
you know, sort of provide the material resources that are needed to uh, to help people who are in sanctuary. But there are also some sort of there's some larger uh, volunteer work uh, that Boston Sanctuary Network undertakes, for example, uh, accompanying people to uh, various appointments associated with their immigration cases. These would be people who are not under the you know protection of sanctuary in a church, for example, there are people who are not at risk of at immediate risk of deportation. Well, again, I want to just say this is incredible work that that people on your end are doing down there, uh, and innovative and, and very necessary. And I will provide. I don't believe that Austin Sanctuary Network has a website set up, but they do have an address where people can make donations if they are so inclined. You know, I also want to ask about. Uh, something that is happening, an action that's happening in Brownville down at the border. I know that you and a number of members uh, from, from Indivisible Austin are going to be heading down to the federal courthouse, and this is an event organized by the ACLU called Families Belong Together at the Border. What can you tell us about that? So this is uh, a rally happening on Thursday. It's organized by the ACLU Border Rights Center, among other organizations, including the Rio Grande Valley Equal Voice Network and the National Domestic Workers Alliance. Uh, this rally started coming together, I wanna say about a week and a half ago or so, uh, actually at the time when the official family separation policy was uh, was still in force. And uh, this event came together as a protest outside the federal courthouse in Brownsville, uh, which is one of the locations where those mass trials that we have seen uh, a few photographs of. Uh, it's one of the courthouses where, where those sorts of mass trials are happening. Uh, this event uh, is really going to center the voices of the children and families who have been targeted by this policy. And I think it's really uh, going to be a, a, a moving moment to, to hear from uh, immigrant families exactly what they are going through and have gone through uh, to get to this this point uh, to be in Brownsville. Uh, ACLU has organized transportation from cities across Texas. So there will be people going from Houston, Austin, Dallas, San Antonio, and uh, and other uh, cities, Laredo, and other cities uh, to be down there to be down there on Thursday and. I think really to for people to have the opportunity to witness this just ho- horrible implementation of policy that is splitting families uh, on the border of Texas and Mexico. Well, Lisa Benjamin, good game. Uh, I want to say thank you for all the work you're doing on the ground there. And, and thank you very much for joining us and, and kind of giving us a, a snapshot of what's happening. You're very welcome. Thank you. So. Look, before we go, uh, I know this has been a hell of a week. Uh, I'm not going to downplay any of it. Things are as bad as they have ever been in most of our lifetimes. And there are whole communities of people whose lives and freedoms are at risk like never before. You may have seen this already, but I want to close on a tweet from civil rights leader, Representative John Lewis. He wrote, quote, be hopeful, be optimistic. Our struggle is not the struggle of a day, a week, a month or a year. It is the struggle of a lifetime. Never, ever be afraid to make some noise and get in good trouble, necessary trouble. So let's be ready to get into some good trouble, gang.
And that'll do it for this week's show. The website where you can find links to everything we talked about today is indivisiblepodcast.org. The email, as always, is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. And the Twitter handle is at indivisiblepod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. Thanks again to my guests, Roxanne Naruzzi, Tamina Watson, Aaron Albanese, and Lisa Benjamin Goodgame. Special thanks to Alex Dark and Aaron Albanese for their help with this week's show. And as always, my thanks to you guys for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.